Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. So the summer of 1999, over 20 years ago, I had just graduated high school and came to Athens for freshman orientation at UGA. Uh, I don't remember a lot of details of freshman orientation, but I do know they taught us one thing. They said we needed to know if we were going to be students at the University of Georgia. Uh, They taught us how to call the dogs. Now, I didn't realize this was necessary, but I learned between services, not everyone knows what calling the dogs is. Is this true? So calling the dogs is a cheer Uh, And it's not just for like football or sports ball. It's a cheer that you do as a University of Georgia student, graduate, et cetera. Um, I probably should have Deacon Tech stand and do it, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, It's a very short, unifying thing um, that helps you know, hey, I'm part of this family. Uh, This is what we do. We call the dogs here at UGA. Um, I see some Georgia Tech fans. They have other traditions. Um, (laughs) They don't use them after touchdowns, but they use them occasionally. Uh, Rocky Top, Tennessee. Yeah, man, we've got some Rocky Top folks. We know how these things work, right? They bind us together. They give us identity. They give us um, cheers and and things that we can do together. They're they're almost like a creed. Uh, Not something empty. I've never seen anyone call the dogs and go, man, this is an empty ritual. I think we should do it differently next week. I didn't feel that at all this time. They don't, at freshman orientation, say, hey, why don't you break out into focus groups and come up with your own cheer? (laughs) No. They say, this is how we do things here. You're going to be part of this family. Let's share with you um, this great tradition that we've received and that then you're going to pass on, probably to your kids or whoever. Um, I did learn also between services, apparently this started in the late 1970s, um, that calling the dogs became a thing um, at UGA. Um, And I bring that up just kind of playfully to say we're going to look at something similar, uh, but way more important, far more important in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in this chapter, uh, in these first few verses, we see the earliest creed of the early church. And it's something as fun and silly as calling the dog should be learned and possessed and handed on faithfully how much more would the earliest creed of the early church, the the apostolic deposit of faith, the gospel, how much more should it form us and mark us? And how much more do we lean into that versus try to come up with anything on our own? We don't want a faith uh, that is personalized. We do want a faith that's personal. We want it to mean something to us, but it's not personalized, it's not customized. And Paul wants to make sure that this church in Corinth understands uh, the faith they've been invited into and inherited and received and the faith that they should pass on in their midst. Um, We're going to spend three Sundays in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start by looking at the earliest creed of the early church. A few Sundays ago, I mentioned that that Corinth, uh, this city who receives this letter, it's a little bit crazy. Uh, There's a chaotic context to Corinth. It's one of the most well-known worldly cities of the ancient world. It's a melting pot of people and religion and vice. It's a crossroads in every sense of the word. And this young church, they're a mess. They're filled with conflict and strife. 
There's different issues that are going on in this particular church. And occasionally, Paul speaks to a very specific issue uh, that they're dealing with. Like a little bit later in this chapter, he's like, hey, you guys are baptizing dead people. Um, that's weird. Um, you know, it's a very specific thing that he's dealing with. Or you have a chaotic church service. Or any of these kinds of things. Lots of problems. But I would say that all of these are probably symptoms of something uh, more foundational. And so what Paul wants to do here in 1 Corinthians 15 is say, hey, let's make sure that we have the foundation correct. Um, if there's any foundation repair that needs to happen, let's shore that up. Because if we don't have that same basis to stand on and rest in and, and live from, then we don't really have a, a, you know, a point of unity as a church. And so he wants to make sure they have uh, this correct He's going to reemphasize and remind them of the gospel, what they had received from the apostles, what God had done in and through Jesus, and what it means for them. I often think that the apostle Paul is one of the most innovative and remarkable leaders in the early church. His work in planting churches, his bravery in going to different places to spread the gospel, his perseverance often being beaten and stoned and almost killed. His brilliance and what you see him do theologically in these letters of the New Testament or pastorally. His tender heart, like in 1 Thessalonians, said, I want to gather you like a, like, a, like a hen, like a nursing mother. He's tenderhearted. He's a remarkable, innovative leader. But here, when it comes to the gospel and the content of the gospel, Paul is faithfully unoriginal faithfully unoriginal, and we're called to be that as well. He's faithfully passing on and proclaiming what he has received. He's exhorting the Corinthians to stand firm in the gospel that they had believed in the beginning, not like a, a gospel that Paul had or Peter's. Like, no, we have the same gospel. We introduce you to the same faith, and you need to stand firmly in that. Uh, it's almost like the image of a baton uh, being passed in a relay race. He says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. So he's going to get back to first things, foundational matters for this church. And lucky for us, we get to read in and listen in on it. We get to see what Paul thought was the most important foundational basic teachings in the church and make sure that we're aligned with these as well. He says it's the gospel that's of primary importance, the earliest creed of the early church. Look at verse 3. It says, I delivered to you. Not I came up with it on my own, but I, I delivered it to you safely. I stewarded it. As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's like, some have fallen asleep. Some are not with us. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. This is what Paul is making sure they understand. This is the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus, according to the scriptures, for you and me and for them. Uh, scholars think that this, this uh, what he's telling them, what, what Paul's passing on, was actually a codified tradition 
Um, maybe as, in as few as five years after the resurrection of Jesus. That within three or four years after Jesus had been raised from the dead, the Spirit comes upon the church. They get together and say, hey, we need to make sure we know the basics and we're not making this up as we go. And it's not different from place to place. And so the apostles kind of put these bullet point form of here's the basic uh, deposit of the faith. That means here we are in touch with the earliest tradition of the early church. <laughs> we get to see what was the message uh, they proclaimed. It was already in a, a kind of a formulaic form by the time Paul got it. And he's committed to being faithfully unoriginal and passing it on without alteration or without personalization because he wants them to connect to God, not to him, right? Uh, to receive the gospel, not just his wisdom or his teaching. And so that good news is we have the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. It's according to the scriptures. That's important to Paul. This doesn't come out of thin air. It's, it's foretold and promised and fulfilled. Uh, this story God has been writing through the whole Old Testament into what happened in and through Jesus. And then a little bit, this is something we can't do as well, but I mean, Paul's fun because Paul says, hey, if you want to fact check me, uh, there's all these people that saw it and saw him. And you're welcome to talk to one if you'd like to investigate uh, this claim. It's a, it's a challenge in the best sense of the term. Uh, for Paul, his gospel is this salvation unleashing story of Jesus. As Messiah, Lord, and Son, it brings to completion the story of Israel found in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Again, the death and resurrection of Jesus. If we don't have that as our foundation, what do we have? And he wants to make sure they understand that. And then he's going to need to do some teaching on the resurrection, both the importance of the resurrection of Jesus and also what that means for us. The resurrection of Jesus connects to our future as well. Um, came across, it was fun, I came across a, a church father, Cyril of Alexandria. So he's a North African theologian. This would be in the fourth century, so shortly after uh, the Council of Nicaea. And I just read this quote as he focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus of these foundational twin pillars. I'm like, man, this sounds like it could be written by the Reformers. <laughs> um, and, and that's a lot of what the Reformation was trying to do. Let's recover um, the faith of the early church. Um, let's see what's in the scriptures. Here's what Cyril said. He made his life to be an exchange for the life of all. One died for all in order that we all might live to God, sanctified, and brought to life through his blood, justified as a gift by his grace. And so Paul is just emphasizing over and over again, Jesus died for us and he rose for us. And he was really dead and he really rose. <laughs> he wants to make sure that we get that. Um, and we'll talk more about the doctrine of the resurrection again in the coming weeks as we go through this chapter, um, how it connects to our future hope as well. Um, here at the beginning, Paul isn't really arguing or explaining the resurrection itself. It's, for him, it's a data point. He's saying this happened, and you need to know about it, and you need to adjust uh, accordingly. He's affirming it as part of the apostolic gospel. He's passing it on as verifiable fact. He's not saying, do you think this happened? Let me talk to you about it. How do you feel about it? He's like, hey, you need to know something happened something true and historic and foundational, and it changed everything. And my job is to tell you about it, not to convince you or cajole, but you need to know this happened. That's what Paul's doing in this passage. Um, 
And the other thing he's doing is he's not doing this in an impartial way. He's not aloof from these truths. These aren't just like, you know, bullet points that he's memorized. Paul says, all this happened, and then it happened to me. He's personally affected. He's personally gripped uh, by the Lord Jesus. And as he passes on the gospel, it's taken a hold of his life. We're told he's had an unmistakable, transformative, personal experience of the risen Lord Jesus. He says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And it wasn't different. The same risen Lord Jesus that appeared to uh, the apostles appeared to Paul. And the same risen Lord Jesus that appeared to Paul, well, he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now, alive, risen, sent his spirit so that we can be connected to him. Richard Hayes, who for years taught at Duke, says Paul did not think of the resurrection of Jesus as some sort of ineffable truth beyond history. It's not an idea. It's not a theory for Paul. Rather, it was an event that had occurred in the immediate past, an event for which historical eyewitness testimony was readily available. And I would just add, while we don't have that same eyewitness testimony, we have two things. One is we have the ripple effect of that eyewitness testimony in the birth and growth of the church. Um, whether you think Jesus was uh, raised from the dead or not, something happened that historically you've got to account for in, in the first uh, century. Um, and then secondly, I would say, while we don't have people who have seen the risen Lord, we have a lot of people who, like Paul, have had a transformative encounter with the risen Jesus. And we can talk to them, because it's not that this happened in history, but this is about someone who's living and risen now that we can connect to. All right, Paul keeps going. Um, this apostolic faith is part and parcel of an amazing grace that he receives. We see this in verses 8 through 11. He's preaching the apostolic gospel. Here's what happened, but it's in a way that's personal and winsome and urgent. He wants them to know, here's what it did for me. Here's what it meant in my life. This is how it has changed me. He goes, remember, I persecuted the church. Like I should have been disqualified. If anyone should have been left out of this, it should have been me. And yet God, by his grace, met me and changed me and transformed me and commissioned me uh, to go out and to preach this good news. Now, if you've been in church for, I don't, know, I don't know if you're new to church or you've been in church a long time, I think that we get really familiar, overly familiar, with the fact that Paul was the murdering first enemy of the church. And because of his encounter with Jesus, he wasn't that anymore. But not only that, that the community received and welcomed and even celebrated his gifts and let him minister among them. I mean, if we had someone who had spent years hunting down members of this church, putting them in jail, putting them to death, and they came and said, hey, I've met Jesus, be a little hesitant, right? Hey, um, maybe you could just sit in the lobby for a little bit. Just, you know, got to make sure this is legit. It's real. Um, we now have metal detectors. Can you please pass through this metal detector, Paul? Make sure you're not carrying something dangerous. Okay, you can go sit over there. You can participate. 
Oh, you can come stand here and you can teach us. Oh, you can write the very words of God in Holy Scripture. It's mind-boggling that one, God had wrought this transformation, and I just think there's a special uh, beauty in the community responding to the transformation in Paul's life. They didn't hold him to who he had been. They knew who he had been, but they had this immense faith in the ability of God to transform sinners and make enemies friends. And that is something that can only happen um, when, when, you, when you have your faith in one who died and has been raised to life. There's something new. There's something transformative in what's happening. And so Paul says, here's what's happened. Verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He, he didn't get smarter. No one tricked him into this. No, the risen Lord met him and extended grace and he received it. And it changed him. And it changes us today as well. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He wants people to place their faith, not in a person or an idea, but uh, in Jesus. In the gospel, in the apostolic gospel, the earliest faith of the early church. He reminds us, just he's this example of God's grace that no one's too far. <laughs> no one's unreachable. Um, and that might comfort you for someone you know that you feel they are far. Or maybe you go, man, that was me. <laughs> and I was the least likely. Whether you're the least likely or the most likely, God draws near. And, and the gospel is the same. That God died and rose again in Jesus, according to the scriptures for you and for me. So then he goes beyond this just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. I just want to grab this before we get to it next week. Um, tell us a little more why Paul is, is so focused on the if he's going to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, why is he going to spend so much time on the resurrection versus even his death in this particular chapter? Why does this church uh, in Corinth need to hear this? What's unique about their struggle? So verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so apparently there's just some confusion in Corinth about um, not so much that Jesus was raised, um, but that, that actually has import for believers. That, that actually forms a pattern and a pathway by which uh, believers will also be raised from the dead. Again, they're not denying the resurrection of Jesus. They're going, hey, we, we get that Jesus is special, but what's this have to do with us? Does this mean anything uh, for us? And what Paul's saying is, well, there's, there's the resurrection of Jesus, and that's the first of this broader category known as the resurrection. Uh, where we're raised to life, we're raised to live with God forever. And so Paul's going to go over that. He wants them to know that. He wants them to tether uh, their, their hope, their faith to their future life with God that's foreshadowed and seen in the risen life of Jesus. Um, and, and this can get mysterious. It can get complex. It can get confusing. The Corinthians didn't know if they thought this even was something true. Other churches in the New Testament, they thought it already happened. Um, and this was something that, this was not a new debate um, in Judaism. They were arguing about this when Jesus came on the scene. Is there a resurrection? You might remember the Sadducees. The Sadducees were characterized as those who don't believe in the resurrection versus those who did believe in the resurrection. But no one thought there was going to be the resurrection of one person <laughs> in the middle of history ahead of everything else. 
And so they're trying to reckon with it. They're trying to figure out, okay, what has God done in Jesus? How do we understand this? Um, and so they codify this early, the earliest creed of the early church, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to all these folks. I find that really helpful. I find it really interesting. Um, and, and I think for me, just so you can know some of my background, I was not raised in a church where creeds were a thing. I mean, if you've grown up in a creedal church, this might not be news to you that we're going to, I mean, we say every week, the apostles are nice in creed. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, right? This is basic. This is foundational. Um, I didn't grow up with this. I don't know if, if everyone here grew up with it. Um, I, I was thinking back to the first time I encountered a creed or the creed uh, was a Rich Mullins song in late high school <laughs> called Creed. It's pretty good. Uh, you can check it out. It's sla it slaps. I think that's the, that's the cool lingo, right? I don't know. Forrest, help me out. Is that right? Okay. I don't know these things on my own. Rich Mullins had a song, The Creed. I thought it was great. Um, it still had no place in my life or faith. Um, it wasn't until I took a seminary class on the Trinity. The professor said, hey, instead of trying to come up with this on your own, maybe memorize the creed. And he had the whole class memorize uh, the Nicene Creed at the time. Um, and I'll tell you what's particularly life-giving for me about this is, and again, I don't know what anxieties you have or what doubts you have. I always wondered, am I a Christian sociologically? Like, do I just believe all this because I was born in Georgia in the 80s and was taken to church, and that's just what you do? Was I just socialized into this, or is it real? And I saw a lot of friends who didn't have that background. They didn't have faith. And so that was, uh, these are the variables I'm playing around with. As so I can just tell you, it was so confirming for me to say, there is some socialization at work, true. But there's a basic gospel. There's a creed that is not tied to Georgia or the 1980s or any of my circumstances. But the Christians have believed everywhere for thousands of years. It's not customized. It's not personalized. It's not culturally specific. It's not because I was socialized into this. It's because something happened. Paul says it's because Jesus was raised from the dead. And now that's had this amazing ripple effect. And so I was captivated with this idea of the creeds. We don't have to make up the faith as we go. We don't have to personalize it. We can receive it and lean on it. And when we have doubts, we can stand on it. And it's something reliable we can pass on to new believers or our children, grandchildren, friends. Um, that's why we've been singing the Apostles' Creed during Epiphany. Um, oftentimes we say the creed. I was like, if we sing the creed just for a couple weeks a year, I bet we'll learn it a little better. Um, our kids down at St. Thomas Kids, they're trying to learn how to sing the same creed so that we know it. And it's, it's deep in us and we can draw on it when we need it. What Paul would say is that we have this great hope uh, that's tied to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It's this rich, confusing, beautiful doctrine. Um, it's actually richer than just kind of a flat story of, well, we die and we go to heaven. It's like, well, yeah, we die and we go to be with the Lord. And then at some point, there's going to be the renewal of all things. God's going to fill his good creation with his glory. And we're going to dwell with him forever. 
Um, too often we can just flatline that story or make it just about us. But you go, man, God is doing something huge and we're invited to be part of it. We actually have claim to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And Paul links this to the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't come up with it. Uh, my favorite author on this, would not surprise you, is Bishop N.T. Wright. Um, he's who introduced me to this, and it, it man, it, it, it's like how I went from the tradition I was in to the tradition I'm in now, um, was his influence in this area. He says, we need to be clear about what the word resurrection itself meant for Paul and his hearers. It didn't merely mean life after death. It was never a general term for any and every belief about what might happen to people when they die. It meant very specifically that people who were already dead, would be given new bodies, that they would return to some kind of an embodied life not completely unlike the one they had before. And again, there is mystery and glory when we think about this. And we don't have to understand it um, to be part of it and to receive it. Um, think about the resurrection of Jesus. We'll, we'll get to Easter later this spring. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, he's weird, right? Like, you can touch him, and he can go through walls. Um, he's recognizable and not. Um, and I don't want to over-explain this except to say, like, something glorious awaits those who have been uh, recipients of this grace, uh, who have received this gospel. And I actually think some of our flattened views of, of kind of what happens when we die are probably more informed by good literature um, than the scriptures. There's a place for that. Um, I love reading Dante. Um, I hope we read the Bible more as we think about these things. Um, I love reading C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis actually has a passage in The Great Divorce about what might this be like? The life of the world to come. Have you ever wondered that? Like, what's the life of the world to come? Like, am I going to be old? Am I going to be young? Like, what things about me now are going to carry over? Like, Jesus' scars carried over. Like, there's some interesting continuity in the life we've lived. Here's how Lewis describes it. He says that there's this vision in the great divorce of those who have been, uh, who are part of this resurrection. Says, I saw people coming to meet us. And the earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. More solid, more human, actually. A tiny haze and a sweet smell went up where they crushed the grass and scattered the dew. So some were naked, some robed, but the naked ones didn't seem any less adorned, and the robes did not disguise, and those who wore them, the massive grandeur. Some were bearded, but no one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. There's an agelessness there. He says, one gets glimpses even now of that which is ageless. Heavy thought in the face of an infant. You ever known those babies with old men face? It's cool. Or, or the reverse. He says, what about when we see a, the frolicking childhood and that of a very old person? We get a sense of this eternal agelessness. Um, and those are just, I think, little hints and whispers and rumors of the life of the world to come. Lewis says here, it's all like that. And all the people are like that. And Paul wants to make sure that this church is rooted and grounded in that hope. 
that they see what God is going to do for them and for everyone, that they, they tether their faith to the resurrection of Jesus. And we see that beautiful balance that Paul is calling for. To be, un, to be unoriginally faithful, receive this gospel, but be personally impacted by it and transformed. And I think that's probably, I, mean, I don't know where you are today, but one of those two is probably where the point of application comes. Um, if you're starting to say, man, I have a vibrant faith in Jesus, but I'm not that well trained on the actual faith of the church. Well, that's an invitation, maybe even over the next few weeks or even Lent to go, how do I, um, how do I see, like, what have Christians always believed? Because I want to believe that. Not something I've come up with or this just, you know, been around for 10 years. Or maybe you're like, well, I've been in church all my life. And man, something happened to Paul that I don't know if it's happened to me. And I think we can overly prescribe what this looks like. We can give people experiences and go, hey, you had this or not. But I think what's important for Paul is not simply did you have an experience, but do you know the risen Jesus? And is that where you're placing your trust? Not even in, in an encounter or an experience, but in the risen Jesus. And we can lean into that together. That's what Paul's hoping for. So their foundation would be sure and their foundation would be repaired. That they would know the gospel and rest in it, rest on it, and hold fast to it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.